0: This is the Moneyweb Be a Better Investor podcast, picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanica.
1: Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Investor podcast. It's a podcast where I speak to the leading investors and business leaders in the country about their approach to investments and especially their personal equity portfolios. My guest today is Viv Govender. He's a wealth expert at Rand Swiss and is also a regular commentator on various media platforms. And he has been looking at financial markets for more than 15 years. Viv, thank you so much for joining me. You have an economics background. Does
0: it help you a lot when you look at investment opportunities? I think it does. I mean, there's many ways of approaching the market. Uh, some people go from the technical analysis way. Others look at a company-specific kind of analysis. I prefer a more of a you know, 30,000 feet view. So I like to look at things from a very high like, you know, vantage point, try and spot trends, and then try and take advantage of the trends thereafter. So the economic background does help with that.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting because many different investors, especially professional investors, they look at different aspects of companies in their process to evaluate opportunities. I've spoken to several CAs and they only look at the numbers. I've spoken to some hedge fund managers and they speak to former employees and suppliers about companies and you take a, a different approach as well. Is there a correct one? Is there a best one? I
0: think firstly, it's consistency that matters and there's feedback as well. I mean, when it comes to like making decisions, the most important thing is to understand that it's 15 years, just to make sure people didn't hear it 50. I'm not quite that old. Uh, but in the almost two decades I've been in the market, what I've realized is that, you know, to a certain extent, your memory is, is kind of short and kind of skewed. Uh, you need to keep a track of, of what you're doing and why you're doing it and seeing how that turns out. And over time, you'll just see the patterns develop, where you make your errors and where you make your wins and so on. And then I think, actually feeds into the whole the gain from experience that you get. If you don't actually learn from what you've done in the past, experience does not matter. Only by learning from what you've done does experience actually matter. You can do things like with anything, but improve how you learn stuff. I mean, just keeping track of your performance, your decisions, why you made them, what the results were, and so on. I think that's very key in terms of becoming a better investor over time.
1: Let's talk about investments. When did you buy your very first share and what was it? Oh, this
0: is uh, a couple of decades ago. I believe it was Sassel. Yeah, the reasoning at the time this was, you know, I was looking at some of the stuff happening in the country and I was a bit more nervous about stuff. Uh, so I bought some Sassels. I saw them, you know, uh, you know, a bit too early uh, at a profit. And that's one of the things I've learned over time is that in the stock market, you know, you can buy 10 shares. And the one or two that does really well, more than makes up for everything else, that either does an average amount or even loses... Most if not all of their value. When you buy something and you think it's a good company, tend to hold on to it. Don't try and take profits uh, too early. Uh, another example is I, I bought Naspers uh, you know a while back, and when I basically made a ten bag on it, I thought wow, uh, ten times my initial investment. You know, step back, it's, you've done very well for yourself, and mm. it, obviously it's, you know since then I could have made a lot more. And and those are the kind of lessons I think that are key, you know, as an investor.
1: It's interesting. Most professional investors, are fund managers, wealth managers, they actually start to buy shares from a very, very early age. Many were still at school. Do you think getting into the market as a young person helps the individual when he invests when well, he or
0: she are a lot older? To certain extent, it does. I mean, obviously, there's, there's, there's pros and cons. Uh, when I was younger, uh, you know, like in high school, stuff, I, I unfortunately had to be, you know, putting money away for varsity because, you know, I just put myself through it and so of course that was a better investment than for instance almost very investment i don't know if you look at what would have been some of the shares i could have bought at the time and how until now uh maybe that might have been a, a more lucrative thing but i think it was worth a while to to spend money on that other times you know you are going to be looking at you know other expenses like for instance a car or a vacation and then that might be a more of a a, a smart thing to do to put some money away into uh, stocks. But it does depend. I mean, all, not all life circumstances are the same. Not everybody can start investing as early as they would like. And, of course, you do have life issues coming about. And, you know, I would never say to somebody, you know, put money away rather than basically get your child to a better school, for instance, you know what I mean? Mm. That Those are the kind of like you know, trade-offs sometimes people have to make. But generally in the in the stock market, you know, earlier the better. But we must also you know, recall a, a fact, I think, that one of my economics uh, – uh, you know, teachings and, and, and things that I've learned of looking at things like economics and history is you must never be too confident about trends. Uh, we, in, you know, basically look at the last 70-something years since the end of World War Two, and think that that is how the world should be and has been. But you go back, you know, 20-something years before that and you have the start of the Great Depression, you know what I mean? And 20 years, you know, on a chart doesn't look like much, but in somebody's life, it's a very different uh, experience. So sometimes, you know, I can see based on the last seventy years, yeah, buy shares, hold shares, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, there were circumstances in the past that do indicate that that might not always be the right you know move for somebody. Yep,
1: things change over time. That is definitely a reality we all face. But your personal portfolio, how many counters or how many
0: shares do you own, and uh, how do you pick them? Well, I tend to work on a a kind of a barba strategy. I think that's a statement or a, a saying that comes from Nicholas Taleb. Uh, I think there's two kinds of money you have. You have your bread and butter money, things that you use to basically support your lifestyle, to make sure everything is functional, to make sure your kids basically are you know fed and housed and you know, schooled in the right way. And then I have what I call the yacht and caviar money, the money that you put out there To try and get the yacht and the caviar and the you know, the private plane and that kind of stuff, and that's more of my speculative kind of investments. In my bread and butter money, we have a portfolio, a global equity portfolio, which is a blue chip portfolio. By the very nature of how we operate it, it basically excludes anything outside the the top 200 or so companies in the world. You know, we're talking the blue chip with the blue chip. Uh, Then in that particular portfolio, I make sure I don't have too much exposed to any particular sector. I might be slightly overweight tech or slightly underweight tech. Uh, slightly overweight or underweight a particular sector, but I'm never going to be all in you know, a company or all in on a particular kind of you know thing, uh, and that is what I would consider to be the bread and butter money, the do the you... money that basically mm. ensures my lifestyle continues at least on a certain level, and then yeah. I take a speculative bet. Uh, C- here can
1: I just interrupt you there? Do
0: you invest yeah. in
1: a collective investment scheme or do you own those shares directly?
0: Directly, I mean beyond a certain point, a collective investment scheme really doesn't makes sense once you have you know about half a million to a million runs invested you really don't need to have a collective investment scheme because one of the big advantages of collective investment scheme is it allows smaller investors to get access to the market in a diversified way with smaller amounts of money but once you have like a million bucks or so around a, little bit of a million dollars you can actually invest quite you know in quite a diversified portfolio by owning those shares directly saving a little bit of the costs, you know more being uh, a bit more active in terms of how you uh, buy and sell them in terms of, you know, winners and losers and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. than just buying a collective investment scheme, paying those that fee, but also having the middle, man, middle person, the middle uh, man, costs involved in it as well. So it's actually cheaper and better if you have mm-hmm. th- enough funds, of course, to buy the shares directly. And that's yeah. what I do. And
1: can you name a few of those shares? How many companies are in that portfolio? And can you name a few?
0: Uh, it operates uh, around 20 or so, going up and down. It's not exactly a, a, a complicated uh, portfolio. Basically, I'm looking at a conservative approach to things. This is not something where I'm going to take uh, a very strong personal view and say, okay, this is definitely gonna be the, w- the way things go. I, it, it focuses a lot on looking at analyst recommendations, looking at, you know, basically. Uh, market consensus, and then looking at my trends, my overall mm-hmm. 30,000 uh, view on top of that. So companies I have in, in there, one of the ones I'll, I like a lot is Amazon. I think that is a an excellent company. I think a company that's done extremely well, but still has a huge uh, possible option to go to. The one example I would say is this. you know Facebook and Google are playing around in the ad space, which is 5% of global GDP. Amazon's playing around, at least one part of its business, in the retail space. That's five or four times larger than that this is a, a a much bigger possibility the other one I, I like is alphabet to a large extent i think that the ad business is excellent uh, you know t- uh, though it much better than facebook's though I might be looking at facebook coming soon because of uh you know not but not in the uh, bluetooth portfolio but more in the punch kind of portfolio mm-hmm. uh, because i think what they're doing around vr might you know be a bit of a an interesting thing i mean they're spending close to $200 billion on this, on VR. And that kind of money on a particular topic, if it can be done, it will be done. Yeah. And if they manage to crack VR to the extent that they think they will, I can imagine that being a massive business, but I'm not so sure they can. So that's going to be in my more speculative kind of pool. But Alphabet is definitely in my blue chip pool. Another one uh, which might not appeal to many people, I mean, if you have ethical concerns, I can totally understand why you will not go for it, uh, Lockheed Martin. I think what's happening in the Ukraine right now and the after effects that you're seeing going through, for instance, with regards to the fact that you see Germany and the rest of Europe come out and say that they're going to be effectively vowing to spend a certain percentage of GDP on weapons going forward, means that of the three big players in the global market economy, the US, China, and the EU, or, the Euro- or Europe, basically, uh, Europe had been effectively out of the arms market for the longest time. They had yeah. not, you know, I mean... After the the horrors of World War II, one can totally understand why they didn't want to see the Germans armed again, why they wouldn't want to be thinking of war, and so on. Hmm. But if you think of the fact that the Chinese were out of the, I mean, China wasn't going to buy for Lockheed Martin, so Lockheed Martin had a market which was the U.S. Now they've doubled their market. You know, and people don't understand how big of impact that's going to have in the future. That of course not all of it's going to go to American companies; some will go to European companies as well. But you're talking about the developed market or the free world market, rather. You know, arms market has gone almost 2x. And I think that is something that's going to feed through to a company like Lockheed Martin. Despite what happens with the Ukraine crisis, I think uh, we might see uh, almost a permanent shift in terms of European defence spending, at least while you know, Putin's in power, yeah. maybe even longer than that.
1: Interesting indeed. And your speculative portfolio, I would assume Lockheed Martin is in there, but tell us uh, about the no, other no. counters.
0: Lockheed is actually my blue chip. Okay. Uh, Facebook is my speculative uh, portfolio. I'm actually, my speculative portfolio, it's, it's focused a lot on AI and tech rate uh, counters. I think that if you look in history, you'll find that, again, I, I like to look, take a longer view. And by longer view, I don't just mean till like the 1980s, sometimes till the, the 1780s, uh, in terms of what I think of, uh, you know, stocks and so on. And if you look through history, you'll find that uh, the biggest profits are always made in new technology. So, when, for instance, railroads were technology and the railroad barons when you know manufacturing was technology, you had you know Ford and you had uh, you know those kind of guys on automobiles you had Rockefeller, you find the biggest companies, the biggest growth that you see comes with this new tech. We basically just lived through about a four decade part where all the tech was happening in one kind of aspect, which was information, so we had the p c the computer, the internet uh, the mobile phone, all kind of doing. Or operating in the same space. And so to a certain extent, we think of tech as being, you know, primarily that. But tech can be bio, it can be manufacturing, it can be anything that's new and interesting. And so I think there's a couple of areas, to look at space is one of them. It also you know fits in with defense stuff as well, because a lot of defense stuff works in space. Unfortunately the best counter there, SpaceX, is not on the market. But I uh, like uh, you know some of the interesting AI plays out there. I mean Google, for instance, I'll give you access to some AI plays as well. I mean, I think I would think Tesla is almost an AI stock. uh, I want to ask you, is uh, is Tesla in your portfolio? Not at the moment. The way I I see Tesla is as follows. It's more valuable than every other car company in the world combined, according to the market cap, even after the fall, okay, or just about. But it's definitely more valuable than any other car company in the world at the moment. But it produces a small fraction of the world's cars. And even surprisingly enough, people think that Tesla has this massive R&D spend. You know, VW spends multiples what Tesla spends on R&D. People don't realize that Ford and VW and Toyota all have these huge R&D budgets. I mean, until very recently, I think VW had the world's largest R&D budget, if not be still continuing. And so these companies have a lot of spend. But Tesla's advantage is as follows. They have cars on the road collecting technology, uh, collecting information, sorry, that the Tesla fleet uh, with that self-driving facilities and so on is constantly sending information back to Tesla. And if you look at what's happening right now, I don't know if you want to get into the weeds with this, but have you seen the stuff like around DALI 2 or around GPT-3? No. Or around GATO and stuff? No, I haven't seen those. These are all names of computer programs that have been coming up recently. If you have any um, artistic kind of bent, there are videos on something called DALI 3, D-A-L-L-E mm-hmm. uh, 2, sorry, DALI 2, okay, which is basically a program that will paint or create a picture depending on the description you made. So you can say, I want an astronaut riding a horse on the moon. And it'll make a totally new, almost photorealistic picture of an astronaut on a horse on the moon, right? You can say, I want a girl climbing a staircase. It'll create a picture, or this is a picture of a girl climbing a staircase. As you can say, I want the staircase to be made out of biscuits. And it'll make the <laughs> staircase out of biscuits. And, it, it, and it's not like, oh, this is some kind of cartoony drawing. If you looked at it, you would think this is a, a world-class graphic designer has designed this particular picture, okay? And the inputs literally are as simple as I said. There's no programming involved. There's no that kind of stuff. It's one of those things when if you weren't following the, if if you were following the the science and you saw that thing for the first time, I know it took my breath away. I was amazed by what I mm-hmm. saw there. GPT-3 as a person involved in words and writing, you've got to see what GPT-3 can do with it. So it's basically, it's a program that generates text based on prompts. So you can say, I want you to, Give me a poem, Ernest Hemingway, and it'll give you that poem—a poem on ships in the style of Ernest Hemingway. It'll give you a poem in Ernest Hemingway style, you know, enough that a person that reads Hemingway will say, "Oh, that's kind of like, kind of like Hemingway," and it'll be about ships. You can you can do that kind of weird stuff there. So these are, are the things that are really popping up really strongly on on my radar. And look, I mean, there's been many what's called AI winters where you had AI technology seeming to get to the point where it needs to be. Yep. Just like VR technology has seemingly got to a point where you think, oh, the next step is going to take us there. And then there's been a winter in which you know, things have fallen apart. Yep. But the thing with VR and with AI is that the day it does take off. It's like for the first time. Uh, like it's like all those guys trying to fly uh, for millennia. You know, Maybe they jump and they, they feel lighter for a couple of seconds and they crash and burn yeah. uh, or crash and collapse or whatever. But uh, one day, the Wright Brothers gets it right and then suddenly you have a whole new industry. And I think we are at the point where the right, the right brothers of the AI slash VR slash some of the other techs out there are about to you know, really take off. And that's primarily where I focus my speculative betting on. I'm not so keen on crypto. I uh, want to
1: ask you now, you're very focused on technology. What do you
0: think about crypto? Look, I, I don't understand some of the stuff. I always have come to it, from a study of history again, and I go back to it all the time. I've come to the conclusion that this rule has always worked out. The guy with the gun wins. Okay, so the person that has the guns tends to win any kind of confrontation. And in the modern environment, you have one side, the crypto guys with the computers, and the other side, you have the governments with the guns. And I tend to believe that the governments with the guns are going to win any kind of dispute between the two parties. I I don't know uh, what your belief system is, but I think that history shows that the guys that have the guns tend to be the guys that end up winning at the end of the day, irrespective of principles and irrespective of everything else. And so what do I mean by that? I think many of the use case scenarios around crypto is about government failure. It's about getting around government. It's about avoiding certain restrictions placed on you by governments. And I don't think that in reality, that's going to be the case. I think that in terms of the way the real world works, look at what happened in Canada recently with regards to those truckers. When governments want to do something, they can do it at at the level that will shock and awe the crypto guys. Your wallets no longer work because, you know, the government says they're confiscated. Your accounts, bank accounts no longer work because the government says, you know, you can't play around in this space. And when it comes to crypto, I think that's one thing people don't consider is that if crypto becomes as powerful as the crypto enthusiasts think, they will eventually come face to face with the fact that governments want to control how money is spent, where it is spent. I mean, I don't know if you know that there used to be a, a facility, like, you know, especially out of the Middle East and Pakistan, where you could go to a shop in Pakistan and say, I want to transfer this much money to my cousin in the U.S., and you could basically put the money there. Your cousin could go the same day to a shop in the in the U.S. and get that cash, okay? That seems like an incredible innovation or whatever. Shut down. Why 9-11? Money laundering. So the government stepped in and took what was on the face of it, not an illegal kind of thing, and not even an immoral kind of thing, and made it illegal because they decided that it infringed too much on their ability to do certain things. There's many things yeah. that are...
1: It's interesting because I think the way crypto works is based on a decentralized system. So, well, we'll have to see. But just lastly, what has been your
0: best ever investment and what has been the biggest dog you've ever bought? Uh, my best ever investment was traveling when I was a kid and when I was just out of varsity. Like I said, I mean, yes, you can buy a stock. if I had taken the money at the time and bought maybe some, you know, I don't know what would be the company back at the time because this was before Google and stuff. But you know, if I'd basically taken that money and bought you know, some like, incredible company at the time, I might make more money. But I think investing in, in, in traveling as in my early 20s was a, was a very good investment for me. In terms of the worst dog, uh, I always think it's quite funny. I shorted Kumba. No, no, Kumba. I shorted Lonman, sorry it was. Yeah. Lonman, this was back in 2008, 2009, the financial crisis. Or oh, just before the financial crisis. And i remember shorting to Lonman and taking a stop loss. And I swear, since I took that stop loss, that stock price never went high in that level ever again. <laughs> and you all know what happened to London thereafter, yes. you know what I mean? So I took a stop loss on a short on London over a decade ago. And I might be incorrect. I may be remembering like you know, like a fish story or something. You know, I caught this gigantic fish, blah, blah, blah. But I've, I cannot recall that share price ever going above the point at which I took a stop loss all those years ago. <laughs>
1: Viv, thank you so much for your insights today. And yeah, I think you've uh, given us some really, really interesting things to ponder regarding tech stocks and new technologies and AI and virtual reality. Uh, I think we can agree that's going to be an exciting future. But thank you so much for your time. That was Viv Govender. He's a wealth expert at Rand Swiss. Show me the money.
0: (laughs) That was the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast with Rate for NECAP. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.